right, well, hey, good morning and welcome to Westwood. To everyone here, those joining us online at Bush Lake and West Tonka, it's so good to be together. Uh, we are continuing along in our summer sermon series, say that five times fast, on the book of James. And it has just been an absolutely challenging and convicting series that we've been in. And as I prep for this message today, uh, I'll be honest, I was radically challenged by it as well. And a story that kept emerging, that kept kind of rising to the surface for me was a story from my childhood. I was 12 years old and you're like, well, that's oddly specific. I'll explain here in just a little bit. It was summertime and my parents were both working and uh, I was trying to figure out how can I fill the time? I was a little bit of a, of a bored kid. And I thought, you know what? I could, I could spend about two, two and a half hours watching a movie. Now there's a movie that had just been released a few months prior and I had actually already seen it, but it was a PG-13 movie. Yes, you know where I'm going with this, all right? There was a rule in our household that you couldn't watch PG-13 movies until you were 13, or disclaimer, unless there was a parent involved, kind of to provide some supervision there. So I was 12, all right? That's how I remember it. I remember I called my mom and I was like, hey mom, you know, I want to spend a little bit of time watching this movie. It's streaming. Um, I've already seen it, you know, so it's not a big deal, but it'll just kind of help me be occupied for a little bit. If I'm honest, as a good kid, I was probably actually going to try to like watch it anyways. I was just trying to get permission, if I'm honest. And my mom was sitting there, I was kind of like building my case and she thought about it, eh, maybe for about a millisecond. And she goes, no. And I was like, excuse me? And you know, it's like, I, I kind of had this like emotion kind of like welling up inside me. I had this passion and this desire uh, to watch this movie. I said, I wanted to watch it and I deserved to watch it. And so I built my case a little bit more. I just said, mom, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I've already seen the movie. Uh, when are you going to start treating me like an adult? You know, and I mean, that doesn't really help the case, does it? But I was like, hey, you know what? You just take it, take the rental fee out of my allowance. You know, I'm a responsible kid. And then she just responded. And she's like, Zach, I'm just, I'm not comfortable with it. I don't want you doing it. And so after a little bit of uh, coercing, we, we hung up the phone. I was like, oh, I'm not going to be able to watch this movie. And all of my passion and desire in me kind of started to, to well up. And as a 12-year-old, I, I kind of got a little, if I'm honest, a, a temper tantrum, okay? And I was like, oh, and I like reared back and I kicked my parents' side coffee table. Now it had cheap particle board on the back. So I, I literally kicked through it and got my foot stuck in it. <laughs> That's how y'all are gonna remember me, okay? I remember a time when Zach was 12 years old and he had a temper tantrum, all right? And as I saw it, like all of a sudden that emotion kind of like dissipated and I was like, oh no, Jesus help me. Because I realized when my mom got home that afternoon, I had some explaining to do. Or as we say in the South, I had some explaining to do. But I tell that story because how many of us have found ourselves in a similar situation, maybe not with a PG-13 movie, but where we feel like there is this longing, this want, this desire within us that kind of wells up and we feel like we want something, we, we deserve something. And if we're not cautious, it spills over and causes some type of strife or conflict with those who are closest to us or those who we love the most. You know, maybe for some of us, it goes with our job and we want a promotion or we want a project and we feel like we want it and we deserve it, but when we don't get it, that causes friction between us and other coworkers. Maybe for some of us as parents or grandparents in the room, you know, you've got that beloved, sweet blessing of a child, you know, they're toddlers and they're four, but you know you cannot slow down a passionate toddler when they want snacks. Okay, and so their wants and their deserving of that emerges and you're just trying to do damage control around them. You feel that strife. Or maybe for some of us, we find ourselves in a relationship and there's some parts of that relationship that we want or that we long for and it wells up inside of us. And when we don't get what we want or we don't get what we feel like we deserve, then that causes us to do things we shouldn't do or treat people the way we shouldn't treat them. And that causes conflict between us and this other person. 
And so what we see whenever we go to the book of James is that James speaks to this topic exactly. And so today, this one big question that I want us to look at is this. How can we avoid conflicts, squabbles, and even war? Okay, when I, when I say that, you're like, war? Really? Like, in the words of Ron Burgundy, like, that escalated quickly. Okay, conflict, squabbles, and even war. What, what does that mean? What does that look like? James will speak into that in just a little bit. But we see that around us, and even in the church that James is speaking to, that there is some friction that happens. And so as we walk through James 4, verses 1 through 10, we really have kind of two major movements. We'll see, first of all, why is it that there are all these conflicts, squabbles, and war, and what can we do about it? How can we avoid those conflicts? And so I want to invite you to just hear these words. I'm, I'm going to read this, these 10 verses. There's a lot there. But hear these words as they might challenge, encourage, or convict you. This is what James says. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Nothing like this is my last sermon, right? Thanks for giving me this verse, Joel, all right? He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns earnest, uh, jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in you, but God gives more grace. Therefore, it said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Man, there is a lot to unpack here. But to do just that, we, we go back to the very first verse of, of chapter four and James opens up with a hypothetical question. He, he says this, he says, what causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? Okay, now whenever we look at this, uh, James is asking, okay, what is causing these things to emerge? And, and really, whenever we dig into this word fights, okay, this isn't necessarily just like a fist fight in the backyard or a fight that you'd see on the hockey rink, but rather what this means is this is a global fight. This is really a war. And so James is saying, you know, there are nations that are going to war. And then he says, what causes fights and quarrels? So not only is it on the macro level of wars, but it's also on the micro level of families squabbling and quarreling. So James is running the full gamut. He's saying there are nations that go to war against other nations, and there are families that are caught in conflict. There are nations caught and entangled in a civil war, and there are even churches that are divided over this tension and conflict that they're experiencing. And so James asked that question, what causes these things amongst you? Now he doesn't leave us hanging, but he continues on in the rest of verse one. He, he says this, what causes these fights? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And so we're gonna speak about this in just a little bit about the, the desires that battle within you. But ultimately what we can see is that James is speaking about a war that is raging with inside each and every one of us. That's a little bit under the hood, if we're honest with ourselves. And so if we were to really summarize and kind of put uh, James's passage into a big idea, I, I think that we could ultimately say this. We are at war because we are at war. Because some of you are like, Ooh, wow, that's profound. That's good. 
Well, what does that mean? I'm glad you asked. Thanks for asking. I would say this. We are at war externally because we are at war. Can you guess it? Internally. What James is saying is that we are at war externally with everything around us because if we're really going to reflect and look inwardly because we are at war internally, that there is a war that is waged within each and every one of us. And so what I think that James is getting at is whenever you look at the conflict that we experience, any conflict can be stemmed back to our heart. It stems back to our passions and to our desires. Now, what I'm not saying, I'm not calling us to not be a passionate person. I'm not calling us to be a, a person that lacks desire. But what I am after and what I think James is after is he's challenging us. He's calling us to be aware of disordered passions and disordered desires. And he speaks about that in verses one and two. Look again at what it says here. Once again, he says, what causes these quarrels and what causes these fights among you? Is it not that you're passions are at war within you. It's this battle internally that's going on. You desire and do not have. So what do you do about it? You fight externally. You murder, you covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. There it is again. You do not have because you do not ask. So as we see this, obviously there are two words that are highlighted that goes back to this internal war that we are facing. Passions and desires. And so let's just unpack this really briefly here. Uh, What is a desire? Well, in the Greek, it's the word epithumia, right? So you can go to work tomorrow and you can say, hey, I learned about epithumia yesterday, right? You can sound really smart. But what is epithumia? Okay, epithumia is, is this desirous pursuit of things that are contrary to the will and to the way of God. It's this idea of pursuing things that if we're not cautious, will ultimately shipwreck not only our faith, but our life as well. It's a passionate pursuit. And then the word passions here, and the Greek word is the word hedone, which you're like, okay, that kind of sounds familiar. It resembles the word hedonism, hedone, hedonism, which for those of you that are familiar, the, the philosophy of hedonism basically says pursue comfort, care, and convenience, so much so that it is a self-indulgent pursuit to where that is what your entire life and entire world is built around. And so what we see that James is getting at is he's saying, man, there are these two things that are at play within us. There are these desires, this epithumia, this this passionate pursuit that we have. But then there's also this philosophy, this this lifestyle of hedonism that if we're not cautious, if it's left unchecked, it'll ultimately shipwreck our lives and our faith. And it's just this craving within us, a craving that sometimes is really hard to squelch. And I'm reminded of a story that I heard uh, when I was back in seminary of the Inuit people. Um, whenever they would have wolves threatening uh, their, their people, what they would actually do to avert these wolves, they got pretty clever about it. They would take their knives. And then the way the story goes is they would dip their knives in seal blood. And then they would leave these knives out to freeze. And then these wolves, because they had crazy senses of smell, would smell this blood from miles away. And all of a sudden their passions and their desires and their cravings would kick in. They'd come up to this knife and they would begin to lick it thinking that they had a free and easy meal. The horrifying part about it is that they would continue to lick it until they died, until they bled out. What they didn't realize is what they were consuming was actually killing them. And that's the same thing about epithumia and hedonism, that sometimes what we don't realize is that what we are consuming is actually killing us. And so that's what James is getting at. He's saying, be on watch, be on guard for these things. He's challenging his church to do just that. But I don't think it's just for the church back then. I think it's for the church here today because we have these these desires and these cravings within us as well. And so maybe you can relate. Maybe there are a couple things that when this war wages within us internally, it'll impact our war externally. You know, for some of us, we have this desire 
and this passion to be right, right? Or, or we have this passion or this desire for our camp or our group to be right. And anyone who stands in opposition to, to our rightness or our truth, uh, what we do uh, because of this desire welling up with inside of us is that we slander them. Not only do we slander them, but we villainize them. And then eventually we demonize them. We say, how can this person hold to this? And we challenge their character, realizing that we have this war raging inside of us, impacting the war outside of us. Or, or maybe for some of us, we have this longing, this craving, this desire for physical satisfaction. And, and we long for these certain things in our lives so much so that it forces us to maybe keep our gaze a little too longer than we should. Or maybe we're a little bit more flirtatious with somebody that we shouldn't be flirtatious with. All because of these longings, cravings, and desire, this war inside of us, to where it spills out into this war outside of us. And if we continue in that craving, consuming that, which we know is killing us, that will not only destroy our lives, but it'll erode all of the relationships that we find ourselves in. And so James is, man, he is not pulling punches on this. It is a hard word to hear, but it is a truthful word that we need to hear. And he continues and he says, it's not just enough with your passions and your desires, but there's something else that's going on at play here. In verse six, he uses the phrase, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, I think that there is something that can actually amplify our passions and it's the motivation of pride. In fact, I would put it on the wall like this. We could say this, our passions plus our pride is what can ultimately shipwreck our lives. You see, our passions, it's ultimately saying, man, there's something that I want. I want something or I want someone. And then whenever you compound that with pride, not only is it that I want something, but now we say, I deserve something. Not only do I want someone, but now I deserve someone. So pride amplifies our passions and amplifies our desires. But James doesn't leave us here. No, James actually gives us an invitation. He gives us a, a, an alternate pursuit. And so we go back to verse 7. And hear what James says. He says this. He says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near or draw near to God and God will come near to you. He says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Okay, so some brief commentary here. Man, why are the doom and gloom, James? Like, why, why are you calling us to, to mourn and grieve and, and change our laughter to mourning? All right, this is kind of like one of those hard passages to hear, but, but I think the reason for it is this, because James is saying there is a severity to your sin. Right? There's a severity to your passions and your desires that left unchecked will shipwreck your life. What James is saying, is, he's saying, I don't want something from you. I want something for you. And so James gives us this invitation. And two words that kind of emerge in these verses here are, are this. It's the word submit. So submit yourselves then to God, and then secondarily, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so submission and humility, they can really act as those counterbalances uh, to passion and pride. In fact, I'd put the chart back up here like this. Passions uh, versus submission, pride versus humility. All right, those two can, can react to each other. And so whenever we think about submission and humility, though, these aren't necessarily cardinal virtues that we elevate and celebrate in our culture today. Okay, submission, it's like, really? Uh, submission is, is like, I gotta put myself under somebody. I, I've gotta put myself under something. And if we're not cautious, pride will kind of rear itself up and say, I'm too good for that. But what submission is ultimately saying is it's saying, you know what? We are passionate people. We are people who have desire. And so submission isn't repressing your passion. 
Submission is replacing your passion. In fact, Psalm 37, it says this, God will give you the desires of your heart. I mean, God wants us to have desires. He'll give you the desires of your heart. But right before that, it says this, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Submission is not repressing. Submission is replacing your passions with something far greater, namely the person and work of Christ. And that's humility. Okay, so what does humility mean? Right, in our culture, it's like, no, no, don't be humble. You gotta be cutthroat. You gotta push the needle forward. You gotta push the rock up the hill. But humility is this idea of saying, you know what, whenever I put my, my passion and my desire, when I replace it with the person and work of Christ, now no longer am I desiring my wants, my will, my way, but humility is saying, I want God's will. I want God's way for my life and the life of those around us. Passion and pride saying, I want it and I deserve it. But submission and humility says, I'm not gonna repress those passions. I'm gonna replace them with Christ. Humility says, I wanna walk in the way and the will of God. And so this is all really important stuff to think through. And it's, it's hopefully a mindset, mindset shift for us. But whenever we, we think about it, if, if we really kind of assess our lives, I mean, it's still tough. Right, is it not? I mean, this is still really, really difficult. And each and every day, you know, we're gonna wake up and it's like, man, you know, I, I want these sort of things, but, but moving from want to to will to is really hard. And I think a lot of times we get this idea and this, this truth in our lives that, man, the temptation in my life, it's so strong. The, the temptation to break from it, to, to shift from my passions to, to God's passion, it's so hard. The temptation in my life is too strong, Zach. I don't know what to do with it. But can I assert something for us today? I would argue that the temptation in our life is not too strong. I would argue that our passions are far too weak. Let me say that again. I would say that the temptation in our life is not too strong, but our passions are too weak. C.S. Lewis, who was the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia and many other books, he actually had this to say. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is actually offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What Lewis is getting at here is what I think James is getting at. Our, our lives are too distracted with, with the temporary pleasures that we think will satisfy us when, when there's an invitation from God saying, no, 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 stop with the mud castles in the slum, but come enjoy a holiday at sea with me. Imagine just picturesque sunsets and sunrises dwelling in the beautiful presence of Jesus uh, saying, you know what? I, I, I would rather have this instead of that. But if we're honest with ourselves, our, our passionate pursuit, our desirous pursuit of things, it's, it's gonna be left to be nothing. I mean, all of our possessions, our technology, all of our stuff, you realize this, and just decades will be trinkets sold at a garage sale. Coats, cars, clocks, whatever it is, those will be pawned off at the end of our life or shortly thereafter. We are far too easily pleased. The temptation in our lives is not too strong, but it's that our passions are far too weak. What I believe James is inviting us into is he's saying, have a far greater passion in the person and work of Jesus. Set your heart's desire and your delight in him first and foremost. 
And so then that leads us like, okay, if we're, if we're called to avoid those sort of things, uh, how then do we do it? How do we walk in submission? How do we walk in humility? How is it that we walk in delight towards God? Well, I want to give you one spiritual practice that I believe that if you apply this spiritual practice to your life, uh, that you will grow in amazing ways. That one practice is this, practice the art of fasting. Okay, now lock the doors, don't let anyone out. Okay, because I know you're sitting there, you're like, fasting? Like, really? What I find so fascinating about fasting though is this, uh, people who aren't very religious or very spiritual are starting to adopt this practice of fasting. Even though it's been passed along throughout the churches for centuries, now people who have no belonging to a church are saying, we need to pursue things of the fasting nature. You see things like take a fast from media or you know, people who are into fitness, they say, try this thing, it's called intermittent fasting. You see, fasting is a catalyst for growth. And it's the same for our spiritual growth as well. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're sitting there and you're like, man, but you, you really want, to, want me to pursue fasting, Zach? Like, but, but I love this. Or man, I love that. Man, fasting, fasting sounds like a bummer. <laughs> so I think that we have to set fasting in its right place. You know, because over the last several years, I, I begin to incorporate this practice quite a bit. And I have to remind myself of this little saying. I, I would say this about fasting. Fasting is not getting less of something. It's getting more of Jesus. Okay, fasting is not getting less of something. It's getting more of Jesus. It's not saying, oh man, I'm so bummed that I'm missing out on this or I'm so bummed I'm missing out on that. But it's saying, no, 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 I get more and more of Jesus, who he is, his goodness, his grace, his love in my life. And so when I think about this, you know, I've, like I said, I've, I've incorporated pockets and seasons of fasting. You know, there are times whenever I'll take a fast from social media. I'll, I'll literally, like for 21 days, I won't get on Facebook or Instagram. And do you know what happens? I'm less frazzled. I'm less frantic. I have less FOMO. Okay, fear of missing out. Okay. I have less comparison. But not only is that one of the results of avoiding those sort of things, now, instead of sitting there doom scrolling, instead of scrolling through Facebook and Instagram, instead of using all of that time, I replace that time with time with Jesus. And so I'm getting more of him in that time. Or, you know, whenever we think about fasting, sometimes it's associated with food. And uh, I'll be confessional moment here. I have a sweet tooth, y'all. Like a massive sweet tooth, Okay. But there are times whenever I'll take a fast from sweets and treats and sugar and those sort of things. And whenever I start to feel those pangs of the sweet tooth just raging up within me, that passion, that craving, that desire, that is like a check engine light kind of dinging off in my head saying, do not rely, do not depend on sugar and sweets, but now rely and depend on Christ. And it's an opportunity not to drive me to the pantry, but to drive me to my knees in prayer, okay? And so that's just an invitation for us. Maybe take a moment to just identify. What is something that you could take a fast from? And, and granted, you, you, maybe you don't have to do 21 days, right? That might be a lot. But maybe it looks like this. Take one day each week and identify something that you want to fast from. It might be social media. So take a day. Tomorrow's a great day. Monday's a great day. And take a fast from media. Take a fast from Facebook, TikTok, Instagram. And as you are removing yourself from that, spend more time and time with Jesus. And then if you do one day, guess what? You can do two days and three days and it'll start to snowball. You know, for some, maybe it does look like fasting from food. Okay, so maybe it's taking a fast from coffee, sugar, or maybe even alcohol and just taking a break from that. And whenever you feel that craving, that longing for those things, 
Instead of repressing it, you replace it and turn and fix your eyes on Jesus. And so friends, this is how the war is waged within us. It's whenever those passions and those desires well up. Whenever we fight the war internally, if we're not cautious, there will be a war that we fight externally. That's what James is getting at. And so just imagine what it would look like if we walked in, in a humble, submissive way to our Lord Jesus. What would it look like if all of us as individuals and collectively as a church said, you know what, I'm going to pursue desires and passions and cravings and satisfy them in, in Jesus. When Jesus says, taste and see that the Lord is good, I, I'm literally going to savor him in my life. And I'm not going to pursue uh, these passionate pursuits in my other uh, parts of my life. Imagine what that would look like. There would be less things coming out in conflict, but whenever we feast on Jesus, his goodness, his love, his grace, his hope, do you know what's gonna come out of us whenever we find ourselves in those difficult situations? Peace and love and hope and joy. In a world that is divided, in a world that is at conflict and at war and at strife with each other, don't you think we need a little more peace, love, hope, and joy of Jesus Christ? And so that's what it would look like if we just set our eyes on Christ, to see him and to savor him. So friends, may we be people who do just that. When the war rages internally, may we be people, instead of allowing the conflict to arise, to say, I'm going to uh, live into the person and the work of Jesus because I've spent my time at his feet learning from him, seeing him, and savoring him. May we be that type of people. Well, friends, if I could just borrow a few more minutes just to share a little bit uh, of what's on my heart. As many of you are aware, today is uh, my last Sunday at West, my last day to, to preach here at Westwood. And uh, just wanted to sh share how full my heart is of gratitude for this church. Um, I joined the staff back in 2010, coming right out of my last uh, little bit of my freshman year at college. And I stepped in, I was like, I have no idea what this thing called ministry looks like, but I'm willing to give it a shot. And over the last 13 years, Westwood, you have been a source of home. You've been a source of family for me. And as our family, as we venture out, as we begin this transition over this next week, please know how grateful we are for each and every one of you. I will take the moments, I'll take the stories, I'll take the memories with me. It's easy for me to say this, you have made me a better husband, a better friend, a better father, a better pastor, and above all, a better follower of Jesus because of the last decade plus that we have spent together. So Wes, I'm grateful for you. I love each and every one of you here. And I will continue to pray God's richest blessing and provision on his church called Westwood. So friends, thank you so much. Grateful for you.